Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome to this week's show, of course, regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. She is Zooming in from a hotel room in D.C., and we've all decided that hotels lie when they say they have awesome Wi-Fi. So you may hear Emily, you may not. For those who are watching on YouTube, we've turned off her camera to, to save on bandwidth. So welcome, Emily. I'm sure you're waving to us through Hello. through the Wi-Fi. Oh, I am. She Hello. Hello. Very good to see you. And I've been thinking I've been on sort of a little Northeast tour. I was in New York yesterday and I've been thinking a lot about infrastructure and America and cities and wealth and the apocalypse that's coming for all of us. So I'm looking forward to today's show. (laughs) And on that cheery note, Mike, aren't you glad to be here? (laughs) Yeah, no, very much so. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Good to be with you both. So uh, look forward to our conversation. Same here, Mike. So for those who may not know Mike Pichek, he is the former commissioner of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. And in April, he announced that he's running for the position of state treasurer. Beth Pierce, his predecessor, announced earlier this spring that she will be stepping down. So Mike, we're so glad you can be joining us. I just want to, we're going to talk policy today, but I want to jump in with just kind of a candidate question. Um, Emily and I are hoping to talk to as many candidates as we can before the primary. And so for you, you know, there are so many ways people can serve their community, whether it's volunteering for the local library, volunteering at the local school, you know, there's so many ways they can do it. For you, why is public service the way you have chosen to serve your community? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, for the last eight years or so, I've been in public service, just not an elected position with the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. And it's really just, you know, extraordinarily rewarding when you're able to focus your entire professional uh, responsibilities toward, you know, trying to make other people's lives better in various ways. So it really is something that motivates me and and, uh, is quite fulfilling in terms of making a difference. So now in terms of this elected position that I'm seeking, you know, the reason that I thought I it was a good continuation is when you look at some of the elected positions in Montpelier, I think some of them really can make a significant difference in terms of tackling some of the most vexing, most challenging issues that we're facing as a state. And I really think the treasurer's office is one of those positions um, because ultimately it's responsible for the fiscal strength of the state and the fiscal strength of the state um, is only as good as the strength of our economy. And there are a number of really critical issues facing our economy, whether it's housing or childcare or demographics or the environment. And I think the treasurer's office, both directly in its direct responsibilities and indirectly in terms of its um, advocacy uh, and influence, has a, a role to play on those issues. Thank you. Emily, we had hoped to talk to Mike about the role of debt and bonding in making policy or making decisions or, or doing things in Vermont. Would you like to expand on that? Because I, I, one reason I want to talk about it is I think it's such a knee-jerk, people have such a knee-jerk reaction to it. And many are like, no, never debt. 
but sometimes it might be the way to move forward. Yeah, I think so. I think because sort of state finances and even more so national or international finances are so incredibly complex, the easiest way for most of us to understand it is to say, well, I balance my checkbook or I, you know, have a mortgage on my house. It's just the same thing, but bigger. (laughs) And which is like a super reasonable way to do it. But that's not really how it, how it works. That's not your individual household budget is a simple system and state finances are a complex system. And I don't mean to say complicated system, I mean complex, the level of sort of interrelationship Mm -hmm. is not entirely sort of immediately discernible. I think one of the things that's really interesting about state budgets and state finance is that at the national level, you know, we can print money and create debt for debt's sake and things like debt and the creation of money are more policy tools than actually individual levers to make dollars in someone's pocket. Mm -hmm. They sort of shift the landscape of the entire economy. And I'm going to sort of save us some modern monetary theory conversation (laughs) and just get back to the state level, which is, I think, sort of halfway between the household budget and this idea that sort of debt creation is a policy tool. Mm -hmm. And I think we have in Vermont this really interesting cultural confluence that I think Mike knows a lot more about than I do of this sort of like New England, careful, fiscally prudent spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really captured in a lot of ways with our current treasurer, Beth Pierce, who um, was very, very, very careful with debt. And a state that also culturally is always pushing forward to the next thing, looking at state government as a real tool for supporting and improving people's lives and thinking about some of the really complex and interesting fiscal tools that we have available to us nationally and internationally to make our lives better. And so I think Mike's office at the Department of Financial Regulation, which I'm sure most people did not have the pleasure of interacting with on a daily basis. (laughs) But for me, I saw as a real like innovation hotspot in state government, I think is sort of a really interesting path into the treasurer's office. And so We have a desperate need for money. The infusion of federal funds has been incredibly exciting. Mm -hmm. And if we want to sort of keep on building on that potential, I think we're going to need to think about debt slightly differently in Vermont. But there are all these other forces at work. So all of that long monologue, Mike, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I think you're asking an absolute, you know, right question, Emily. You know, what, and ultimately, I think the question boils down to um, what are you prioritizing for that debt for that bonding, right? I think, you know, when you have a plan, a long-term plan, and your long-term plan says, we need XYZ number of housing units, we need XYZ number of childcare centers to be able to bring in however many jobs, and that creates whatever revenue, and that sort of puts Vermont on a more economic and, and stable and sustainable path, but we can't get that many more housing units or that many more childcare centers without, you know, another $50 million of investment from, from uh, the state government. And if you're, if you're making wise investments as part of a plan that, you know, will, will yield results and, and reverse 
one of the two challenges that these national rating agencies often point to for Vermont, one is usually our unfunded pension liability and the other is our demographics. You know, we can't, you know, I don't think we can solve the demographic problem without investing more resources into, you know, fixing those problems. So when, when you were talking about this, I, it reminded me that I, I had just went to my parents' house this weekend and found some really old, you know, things that we were saving when I was a child. But one of them that I had was this letter to the editor from when I was 15 years old, <laughs> talking about the transportation center and how it was a $4 million bond that Brattleboro was voting on. And I said that the time was right and the price was right for the garage. $4 million bond, right? I mean, it's a critical piece of downtown infrastructure now. It was an important investment to do that. It required us to take on debt as a town, but that debt was worth it when you think about the significant impacts, both short-term and long-term, uh, that something like having that infrastructure um, in your downtown provides. So I think it's a conversation that really boils down to what are you, you know, what are you, what are you bonding for and how can we as a state agree that that investment is fitting into a key component of our future success. And then Mike, that, we have to we have to spend a minute on this yeah. newspaper article and your 15-year-old self <laughs> and you tried to just sort of like pass over it as an interesting example but first of all, you know, for folks who are outside of Brattleboro which I think is most of our listeners sometimes, the transportation center was like one of those small town fights mm. and like deep political battles that, you know, you see sometimes, you know, should we change? Should we invest? Should we make this new infrastructure? What will it mean for the future? Who are we? All these questions. And Mike, you at 15 decided to wade into this conversation <laughs> about debt, which sort of pointing to, you know, Olga's first question, like you've really been thinking about these very same issues your whole life. I well, love we, that. We should clarify that wasn't like a school assignment or something and that people had to, students didn't have to write letters to the editor. Okay, just checking. <laughs> For our radio <laughs> listeners, Mike's shaking his head no. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm still, I, I had forgotten about this because um, I, when I reread it just this weekend, they, the reformer, when they printed it, said there was something about how people like to come downtown to shop, but the reformer printed it as, People like to come downtown to WAP with a W. So I remember being upset that they had made that error. I wasn't an error on my part. I remember that. <laughs> that brought me back. 20, that brought me back twenty-three years. <laughs> That's the best. Oh, that is the best. No, but I mean, I remember the debate well, and there were people close, you know, close to our, our family friends that were really thinking that this wasn't a wise investment and, you know, Brattleboro didn't, downtown didn't have a lot to offer and we shouldn't be making these investments. And it just seemed silly to me that we wouldn't be investing in our, in our downtown that, you know, this was the era of the mega, this was the, that time period where, you know, Walmart had just been put up across the river not too long before this. And the downtown and Brattleboro, as all of our downtowns felt like it, they were under threat and pressure from box stores and, and urban sprawl, even in Vermont. So, you know, I think, I think still today that we realize and recognize the extraordinarily important role that our urban centers in Vermont play for everything, economic development, housing. And I think it's still the future. I think people want to live and the way that we can build housing the most effectively and efficiently is dense downtown, you know, housing near city town and village centers. So um, I think those kind of investments are still things we need to make today. 
you know, talking about bonding and debt and, you know, going on to housing and, and village centers, we have talked on this show a lot about what it, how many levers need to be pulled to, to put new housing in, especially towns like, like Brattleboro has a lot of municipal infrastructure already, but for towns that don't, um, and of course this brings us around to the wastewater issue and, and um, septic issue, What's your thoughts on on bonding for larger projects like that? Is there is there a smart way to go about it? Are there things that communities should be considering? Like in your head, do you have a matrix of if X, Y, and Z happens, then this is a good bond? Or like how do you approach how do you approach that question of when to bond or when to take on debt? Yeah. So I, I mean, I I, I think. You know, you can't, you know, if you add up all of the things that we want to spend money on, which, you know, is quite a number and each one has a big price tag and, you know, whether it's bonding, whether it's federal money that we're getting, whether it's general revenue sources, like we know we don't have enough to cover all of them. So from my perspective, you really have to look at what are, you know, what can you boil down to the sort of fundamental nugget that um, if you invest in that, it sort of opens up opportunities for private investment, for other grants, other federal funds that wouldn't otherwise, you know, be invested in. So I think infrastructure is one of those, you know, water infrastructure particularly is one of those key sort of building blocks to being able to have um, more um, dense and, and uh, you know, larger scale development. Energy, I think, is another one, your source of energy and and the expense of, of that source is a, is a key question as well. I think in the future, then that's more for the urban side necessarily, but also weather and weatherization is another key one for our more rural communities as well to improve the housing stock. And all of those things at the same time, I mean, we're talking about directly improving cities, towns, village centers, but doing those things, improving our you know, wastewater facilities, improving our energy infrastructure, um, weatherization, they all have an indirect benefit on our environment and on our climate. They have a direct benefit, but you're doing them for, you know, the reason you're making those investments maybe is for a different direct reason. So, you know, when you have things like that, where you can make a difference that unlocks a lot of other potential and that creates a number of win-win scenarios, I think that's, I think those are projects that you have to have more, um, you have to put more weight behind in terms of, in terms of considering them. So I think that fundamentally is what you need to look at, but I think you also need to have a long, you need to have that long-term vision of like, how does this fit into where we're trying to go? Um, Because if you're just sort of, you know, willy nilly making investments in different places and different communities and different types of projects, you know, that might be great for that product, that, that town or that city, maybe it won't turn out, maybe you could have used it in in a different way to make an even bigger impact but I don't think you can make those determinations until you have sort of that, I don't know, we're not good at that in government, right? Like 10 years, I'm not talking, yeah. I'm not talking about five years, it's more like 10 years out. Like, where do we want, you know, in 2030, 2032, where do we want to be um, in Vermont? How many people do we want to have living in Vermont? Like, what do we want our economy to look like? How many, you know, what does our housing stock look like? You know, are we, how are we handling those that are experiencing homelessness? So, you know, what is our, what is our long-term plan and how do we best make investments to get ourselves there? Um, I really, my, 
Mike, yeah. I really appreciate that lens because I think, you know, if we're looking at just the community level, we can look at where else, you know, where might we be able to pair investment or something like that. But when we're looking statewide, I think that focus on both our long-term vision and then what can we do that's also going to sort of cascade revenue in? So right. when we look at sort of the federal spending that we've seen, it's not just that Vermont got that money from federal spending. It also started a huge wave of individual spending, which was able to create state revenues that we could then reinvest. And so there are ways that we can invest state dollars, invest state bonding ability and debt ability that will create prosperity in all of these different ways you said into the future, if, if we're actually able to plan and think systemically, which I'm curious how you, in the absence of a governor who's interested in doing that, mm-hmm. and in the absence of a legislature that really doesn't have the capacity to think long-term. And, you know, since we have very little staff, there've been talk of a planning department before, which I feel like most days is just another department to throw at a wall. I guess I'm curious how you imagine we would be able to do that kind of visioning. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I've been thinking a lot about that too, because it's not to say that there aren't organizations out there that say, you know, here's our Vermont future. Here's our, you know, here's what we envision for Vermont and what our needs are, but there's sort of, you know, nonprofit organizations or other sort of outside government organizations that have tried to bring stakeholders together, but it's not like that is the North star that policymakers use to guide themselves. Right. So I think, I think the first question is like process, like what, kind of process do you implement to get buy-in from, you know, leadership in the legislature, buy-in across the executive? And I think that's the most critical point, not even so much, you know, obviously it's important what the vision is, but how do you get everyone to agree that like, yeah, this is the blueprint that we want to follow and not create some blueprint and do a ton of work only for it to be ignored and, you know, cast aside. So I, I do think that requires, you know, sort of a lot of challenging work and conversations with legislative leadership, with legislators, with the governor, with the governor's office, with important non-governmental stakeholders in the nonprofit sector, you know, in the you know, general profit sector, but in like sort of that those organizations that make a lot of investments in Vermont and bringing folks to the table and trying to have those conversations and get that buy-in. And you have to keep it fresh, too, because, I mean, you know, the legislature, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, you're thinking about that biennium, like you're thinking about that session, that next session, getting real, you know, getting reelected, obviously. But just what will the composition of the legislature be when you get reelected? Like this year, it's going to be significantly different. And Uh it's hard to maintain that long term vision when so many of the key stakeholders, you know, may or may not be there. And you know, if you make a plan and say, this is great, we all, this is what we all think should happen. And then two years later, you elect, Vermont elects a new governor that comes in and says, I want to do the opposite. Then, you know, that's a pretty key stakeholder that now has thrown <laughs> that plan up into the air. So, so I, I just think that that process is so important to get people in on it and then to make it sort of, make it sort of a living document that, you know, is, is, is sort of agreed to and, and revised and re-agreed to, you know, over time. Yeah, we had um, Paul Costello on the show when the Vermont Futures, mm-hmm. uh, that futures, was called the Vermont Futures Con- Consortium. Promise. 
and sort of talked about all of those things. And I recently saw some email that like it is now officially launched, but I haven't, well, I haven't looked at it when I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next year in the legislature. Right. And I know yeah. I'm not the only one. And Olga is very, very good at reminding me. And it's become something of one of my guide stars that we never know when someone's going to enter a conversation. And so we need to be willing in every conversation to welcome the person who just showed up to it. And I'm in a sort of mini Twitter argument with someone who there was an article in Digger about how many studies the legislature commissioned that I think sort of lost the underlying point that we only get to ask staff a question if we actually put it in a piece of legislation. And so you either ask a lobbyist or you put it in a you put a study in a piece of legislation. Those are sort of the two ways you get a question answered. And so I, you know, this person on Twitter and I are going back and forth, like, why can't you all ever make a decision or get anything done? And I'm like, well, it's a whole new group of people every two years. And so I can make a decision perfectly fine, but that doesn't mean that my decision is going to be the decision that carries the load. And so I think these sort of constitutionally elected positions are really interesting in terms of your ability to carry that narrative. Right. Um, but I also, I don't know, it's, where do you see your power sitting as, tre- like, where does the treasurer's power sit in terms of persuasion or convening? It's certainly a lot more power than, say, the lieutenant governor has. But I guess I don't, I'm curious how you see it fitting into the larger matrix of elected offices. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Emily. And that sort of, I guess, was the one thing that was left unsaid is that, and, and sort of relates back to why I was interested in the treasurer's position to begin with, is I do think as a constitutional officer, as you know, having a, a larger platform or microphone, you can sort of re, you know, continue to communicate a, a long-term vision for Vermont's future. And I think you'd be a better convener and, you know, um, and, and keep it sort of at the forefront of policymakers' minds than maybe an outside organization trying to come in and influence, you know, policymaking and, and state government. So I do think there is a um, opportunity there. I think probably the two offices that have that opportunity are treasurer or governor. So, you know, when, you know, hopefully if I'm elected, I, I think it's an important part of the job to stake out, um, to be the sort of point person on how is our, even on short-term things, how is our economy doing? How are we trending? What is our short-term, you know, uh, forecast look like, but also making sure that we convene and advocate on a longer term, a longer term plan as well. So I think if you have the right, I think if you approach those issues with, you know, dedication, thoughtfulness, competency are viewed and maintain your trustworthiness, then I think you can have a, quite a significant amount of, of indirect, you know, in, influence and, and indirect, uh, you know, ability to ha- influence those conversations. Mm. I am embarrassed. I don't know the answer to this. But it's occurred to me, you know, what type of either long-term forecasting does the treasurer's office do? Or if the answer is not much, what kind of long-term forecasting would you like to do? And the reason this is me being more of a local reporter, but, you know, most towns build a a five to 10-year capital budget. And they look at like what expenses are coming up. Like what kind of forecasting does the treasurer's office do or 
Yeah, the mo- right now, like just taking the state of Vermont, the, usually the the revenue forecast and the economic forecasting really lies with um, you know the state economists and the uh, oh, right, and the, right. the joint committee that sort of makes you know revenue targets. So that usually looks out, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't know, a year to two years or 18 months or something in that time frame. So, um, and that's looking at, you know, obviously the revenues of the, of the state, what is the state going to bring in so that you can build a budget and think of future looks like. So obviously where the, where the revenues are coming from, there's a lot of underlying components that you need to have an understanding of how they're trending and how well they're doing. So that is probably where that's being done now, but, you know, even more granular analysis and discussion about some of those economic points and looking out a little bit further and looking out at how that is trending towards some vision that you have is something that we don't necessarily get across state government at the moment. I think the place where the treasurer's office has a role most specifically, and it's not even really forecasting, it's really just trying to make people aware of what the current status is, is on the pension side you know, making sure that that we, and I think this would be one of my goals if I'm fortunate to be elected, is having sort of a quarterly update on the status of the pension system broadly. How are the investments faring? You know, how are the active to inactive ratio faring? What's the funding level? What's the unfunded liability? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Because we don't want anyone to be surprised by how we're faring on one of these really significant responsibilities that the state has to ensure a a safe and dignified retirement for thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have been public servants their entire careers. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also want to make sure that we don't, you know, ignore an issue if it's growing bigger and bigger or if it's getting better. So that's not necessarily, you know, forecasting, but you can kind of get a sense of the direction that you're trending, I think, by doing that kind of, you know, quarterly updates. And that's for all of the important stakeholders, legislature, others in the executive branch, you know, those in the media, those public taxpayers as well. So I, th- so I think those would be sort of two, you know, general economy, but also specifically to how the pensions are faring are things that, um, that the treasurer's office could be providing regular broad updates on. We need to pause here so we can hear from some of our underwriters on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. So stay tuned, everyone. We will be right back with Mike Pichek and Emily Kornheiser. Back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with former commissioner of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, Michael Pichek, who is also running in the primary for state treasurer. So looking forward to diving back into the conversation with you, Mike. But before I do, we have to remind listeners of a few things. One, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on BCTV, as well as uh, wherever you find your podcasts, like Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Podcasts, as well as our Facebook page, which is the Montpelier Happy Hour and Emily's YouTube page. And... Emily, unfortunately, had to run to a meeting, so she has stepped away. So it falls to me to remind you all that the views and opinions shared on this podcast and the radio station and whatever platform it appears on 
are those of the hosts and the guests and no one else, none of the platforms, none of the employers, not our pets, not our <laughs> family members, nobody, just us. So thank you for joining us again. Mike, I want to, um, I've, I think I, I warned you, I had a couple of questions that we'll be asking as many candidates as we can who can come on the show. A few kind of standard questions. And my, my second one is, when you look out at the broad community that is Vermont, it doesn't always work for everybody. Not, work, not necessarily financially, maybe not community-wise. There's a lot of reasons it may not work for folks. But looking at the treasurer's office, if there was um, a policy or a change that you could make, what would you do in an attempt to make Vermont work for everybody? Yeah, that's, no, that's a great question. It can be hard to live in Vermont sometimes, you know, at any stage of life. You know, if you're a young person having graduated from college or having graduated from graduate school trying to find a job in Vermont that will allow you just to pay your debts, your student loan debts, mm -hmm. you know, that can be challenging, let alone paying your student loan debts trying to save for a home or trying to buy a home, trying to save for retirement. So there are, I mean, that's just one example of, of, of an issue that's causing many young people to say, I like, maybe I'd like to live in Vermont, but I can't afford it. Yeah. I'm going to have to live in a state that has um, a larger, or a city really, that has a larger opportunity for salary. Now we have some benefit because of the pandemic. It really has separated that need to live and work in the same geographic location. And we're seeing some of that in Vermont where people with higher paying jobs, I have friends that are, that are my age that have come back to Vermont with higher paying jobs that they're still, you know, employed in New York or Boston or some other city. And that's great, you know, for our tax revenue and, and, and whatnot. But it also is causing this issue, which I was going to call as the fundamental issue that I would try to work on. Mm -hmm. um, it's putting pressure on, on housing. So we have people that are coming and buying homes. Either they had a connection to Vermont or they didn't have a connection to Vermont. They are coming from places, you know, it's the inverse. So they have the higher salaries, but they also, you know, places like New York or, or you know, DC or Philadelphia, you know, you sell your starter home for a million dollars or something, right? Like you're, and then you take that million dollars and you come to Vermont and you say, wow, look what I can buy. But an average Vermonter, you know, trying to scrape together, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars to make it down payment, you know, they really can't afford to find a home and compete with those out-of-state buyers. So it's driving up the price because, you know, their conception of, of the price is different than mm. us that grew up in Vermont. And it's also just adding to scarcity of housing stock generally, which is driving up the price. The, the less that we have of something that people want, the, the higher the price is going to go. So that's a real challenge. And they're, they're coming with their job. So they're not adding to the Vermont workforce in the sense that you know, the jobs that are here that we need filled, whether high tech jobs from like, you know, beta technology or whether, you know, retail jobs like down in the upper valley at Dan and Wits, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's only compounding our workforce challenges because the housing crunch is getting even more um, acute. So I think, you know, adding more affordable housing across the board and my vision would be more dense downtown housing. You know, I think both ends of the age spectrum are interested in, in urban downtown housing, both the young people and also older people that have, you know, that have um, either they've raised children and they have moved out or they just have gotten to an age where 
you know, mowing the lawn and taking care of the snow and gardening and cleaning up the outside is less and less appealing that living in a, you know, living in a condo that all of that is taken care of for you becomes right. more appetizing. So I think there's an, an interest in it. I think there's a need, a need for it. And quite frankly, the housing crisis is holding back the full potential of the Vermont economy. People, yeah. businesses want to hire, but they can't find employees because those employees can't find housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's number one. I think number 1A, which is a similar but different issue, is childcare. Childcare is preventing people from going back into the workforce or it's pulling people out of the workforce because childcare is, is not available or it's unaffordable, which is the same thing as housing, not available or unaffordable. Right. So those two issues, I think, you know, we're talking about what are those core issues you can find that if you make progress on them, it sort of unlocks other opportunity within the economy, within, within uh, other parts of the state. I think those are two fundamental ones. And in terms of it working for everybody, obviously, if you can afford a home, if you can have childcare that's affordable and, and have a, a job that you want, I mean, that works for everybody. But more importantly, it grows our economy. And as we have a strong economy, we can do all of the things we want to do to take care of people who are struggling and, and are less well off. So from my perspective, my outlook is a strong economy is number one. If we do not have that, we just are limited to how much we can help those in our communities and those around us. With a strong economy and a growing economy, then we have a lot of resources to help people. Um, but that is really the, um, that's really the key is that strong and growing economy. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mike. What you were just saying about having a strong economy got me thinking, and let me see how to, bear with me how to formulate my question. I think a lot of people would agree on that. Say, yeah, we need a strong economy. I'm not sure everyone would agree on what makes the economy strong. So in in your view, what makes a healthy economy and and where does Vermont kind of need to fill in those gaps? Yeah, so I think I think a healthy economy is a diverse economy, right? Mm-hmm. And in every sense of the word. So you have a lot of small businesses, you have some medium-sized businesses, you have some larger businesses, you have businesses that are mature and they've been around for 50 years. You know, it's hard to you know create those overnight, obviously. But you have new businesses that are coming online and and uh, you know establishing themselves every day. And I think it's an economy that's locally owned, quite frankly. I mean, I do mm-hmm. think we we struggle with sending so much of our money outside of our locally earned money outside of Vermont, whether it's box stores, whether it's online purchases. You know, that that is a, a challenge, but I totally get it. When when you can't find anything else at a locally owned store, and when you do find something, it's to twice as expensive as, you know, a retail, a large national retail store, you know, you, you can't really, you, you understand why people are making those decisions, but having more small locally owned businesses, I think is critical to having a strong, you know, backbone in, in your economy. I think you also have to look at what types of jobs are they? And, and I think long-term in terms of sustainability, you know, we have to focus on environmentally friendly, clean jobs. I think Financial services is a really good industry here in Vermont. Our captive insurance industry employs hundreds and hundreds of people, well-paying jobs that are environmentally clean. There's no uh, smokestacks or, or things like that that, that uh, are required for the captive insurance industry. 
So I think that's another key underlying component. And then I think general, you know, general fairness um, is a core concept as well that, you know, that relationship between ownership and the employees, one that is fair, whether there's a union or whether there's not a union, just that there is that mutual respect for how each other is benefiting one another, either through, you know, their blood, sweat and tears on the labor side or whether it's through, you know, risk and capital deployment and management and ensuring that everybody's protected on the ownership side. So, you know, I think diverse economy, one that includes a lot of locally owned small businesses, focus on how can you do that without, you know, impacting the environment in a negative way, or even the inverse of saying that is how can you take advantage of our need to transition to a lower carbon economy um, and build that into your economic plan. And then of course, making sure that there are, there's a mutual balance and respect between employers and employees, uh, which I think is a critical piece as well. And we can't, we can't do much about it here in Vermont, but you know, you look at the, on the national scale or even the global scale, this trend toward really extreme wealth on one side mm-hmm. and uh, extreme sort of, you know, lower middle class poverty growth on the other side with the really sort of shrinking middle ground there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you obviously want to our whole in the United States, we're a capitalist society that is the foundation of our economy. But you know, we have always historically had certain governmental interventions and regulatory oversight and and uh, and control and guardrails on that. And again, not anything really we can do here in Vermont per se. But when you look at the national scene, you know that extreme aggregation of wealth toward the top, I think, is something that is making our economy unhealthy. It's not as diverse and spread out as um, you would like it to see. So that impacts Vermont as well. And I think we should just try to cut against that to the degree that we can. Mm -hmm. Let's pivot back to something we were talking about before the break. Right before the break, you touched on the the role of the pension system and retirements and the the kind of need to to give those quarterly reports to keep people abreast of what's happening with with our pension system. During the break before Emily had to step away, you and, and she had an exchange that I, sound, I found interesting, talking about what this pension system meant to Vermont beyond the conversation that it's been having, which is the liability of the unfunded part. But what does a pension system like this mean for our economy, for public servants? You know, why, and uh, sorry, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Sometimes my brain and mouth, you know, they need to catch up with each other. Um, <laughs> you know, one thing both you and your and Beth Pierce, who has just stepped down as treasurer, or is, or will step down as treasurer, have pushed against is just changing the pension system into a four hundred one k system. You know, some people think that's a great idea, and you've kind of pushed against that. Let's let's dig into that, like. Yeah, for why, sure. Yeah, why preserve the pension system as it is? Yeah, so I think, you know, this it's the system that we have. It's a system that we've had for decades. There, we've made promises to people who are, you know, worked for the state of Vermont for 40 years right now, 35 years, 30, 20, whatever the number of years is. They've been in a system where they're, you know, the system and the retirement system motivated them to some degree to seek 
you know, the public service that they're working in now, whether they're a teacher, state employee, a municipal worker, it has a, a pretty significant for some and uh, just a significant for other uh, folks um, reason for why they got into the to the position. And they very well have taken, you know, this opportunity to work in public service and they have turned down other opportunities, maybe more lucrative uh, out of state or in state to work in the private sector. Uh, so having that safe and secure retirement is a really critical you know, selling point for those that are thinking about working in state government and uh, teachers and municipal employees. So quite, you know, just to, you know, that's why it's so important. And we're in that system. We've had it for decades. So to think about transitioning away from it means that you're going to not be able to fulfill those promises that you made to people. If you're saying, you know, now you have a 401k plan, well, wait, I thought that I worked, you know, 30 years and then I was able to know with certainty that I could retire with dignity and I wouldn't be outliving my money, right? My, mm-hmm. I, you know, I had a secure retirement. When you go to a 401k plan, you know, it's, it's quite simple what you're doing. I mean, right now, the risk of you outliving your money if you're in the pension system is on the state of Vermont. It's on the local municipality. If you flip it around, it's on you. It's your mm-hmm. risk to out, not to outlive your money. And I'll tell you, people that don't have a pension, you know, we see this, that they don't save enough for retirement. Uh, they're not on track to have a retirement with dignity. And Social Security, you know, it's becoming a less and less valuable benefit over time, either because the age has changed or the amount that you can collect. And, and even previously, it wouldn't have been enough for most people to be able to retire on. So, you know, if, if there's that risk and people aren't getting the retirement that they they need, then, you know, there's other ways that they that they can that there can be financial burdens on the state if people need state resources to be able to survive in retirement. So the pension system, as currently designed, I think does three fundamental things. It's a a recruitment tool for people to come and work in state government, to work as a teacher, to work in a municipality. It also ensures that you're retiring with dignity, that that risk of outliving your money, you know, is not on you, that you can um, have confidence in retirement. And then there's also economic activity that we were talking about as well. Most Folks that retire with these pensions, the vast majority stay in Vermont. They have spending power. They have the ability to go out and um, engage in the Vermont tourism economy, even though they're from Vermont, the ability to make important purchases, to have discretionary spending. And that has an economic uh, impact for all of our communities that state employees and teachers live in, which is pretty much every community across Vermont. So those are the reasons, I mean, and again, to transition away from a mature pension system like we have. It's extraordinarily complicated on the financial side, but I think just in terms of the promises that we've made and those other reasons, ensuring that people have the confidence in retirement just wouldn't be the um, wouldn't be the right thing to do either. So yeah, I think you know at the same time, we need to make sure that the pension system is financially strong, right? That mm-hmm. that is key. We can't ignore that. I mean it's not it doesn't come without a big price tag. And we've seen our unfunded pension liabilities grow. Uh, when you look at everything, teachers, state employees, the pension side, the, re- the OPEB side, the healthcare side, you know, over, I think it's now over close to 5 billion, it was over 5 billion, closer to 6 billion even. And that's a significant sum. But we did pass, the legislature passed and overrode the governor's veto, a compromise that would chip away at that unfunded liability get the healthcare into a trajectory 
where it could be paid down over time, like the pension is. Some reforms on the pension side, teachers, state employees are paying more into the system, they're sacrificing. And the estimate is that somewhere between $1.7 and $2 billion of the unfunded liability will now be taken off of the state's balance sheet. So I don't think it solves the pension issue for all time, Mm -hmm. but it certainly gets us further down the road uh, to being in a more stable and sustainable trajectory. And that's why I think that's so important for the treasurer's office. We wouldn't be having the debate about defined contribution or defined benefit plan if our pension system was fully funded and, and operating, you know, in a sustainable way, because we wouldn't have, it wouldn't come down to how are we going to afford it? Mm. It would just be something that was, you know, operating the way that it should. So, you know, if you want to think of it that way, getting the pension system to a sustainable trajectory, that's what would end that debate between, you know, defined benefit and defined contribution. Um, but in any event, for state employees and teachers and, and municipal employees, I do think that defined benefit plan is uh, really, really critical. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mike. Another topic that has come up for the treasurer's office is the question of whether to divest state funds from fossil fuels. And if I understand correctly, Beth Pierce has not been in favor of that simply because on the big picture of Vermont's, the state's uh, economic health, at this point, she doesn't feel it would benefit the state. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's a great question. And it kind of ties back into the question that we we're just talking about with the pensions and the strength of the pension system. So let's say, let's say we go back in time like 30 years and we were talking about this issue of divestment. And as fiduciaries of the pension system, we said, hey, we're going to remove all of the fossil fuel investments from our pension system. But the fossil fuel investments are the ones that are going to pay the, the greatest returns, let's say. They're going to mm-hmm. you know, outperform all the other industries and outperform the market. So when your fiduciary obligation is toward those pensioners, making sure you're earning as much money as you can for them so they do have a secure retirement, we do have a defined benefit plan. Uh, we don't need to you know, cut their benefits or talk about moving to some other system because the investment returns are strong and, and they're able to support the system. You know, that is a conversation that you'd probably have 30 years ago. So from a financial standpoint, I think that conversation has evolved today. So when you're looking today and saying, okay, over the next 30 years, fossil fuel investments are not going to be the good investments, right? They're just from a financial standpoint, it's just not a strong industry. We're going unless those industries are themselves transitioning to a lower carbon footprint, because we're going to be forced as an economy to transition to that lower carbon economy um, over the next, even in the short term, over the next years, over the next decades. So I view this issue of, of, of fossil fuel investments, not just from a social standpoint, which, you know, from a personal standpoint, I, I agree, like we need to put our values and, you know, our money where our values are, but from a fiduciary standpoint, which is the one the treasurer's office needs to have, I do worry about these investments, you know, over the short and long term, particularly once we get over this sort of, uh, you know, gas, this acute gas mm. increase that we're experiencing now. So that's sort of how I would look at the issue of divestment. New York uh, State, I think, has implemented a really appropriate and effective program at looking at this. So, you know, you don't want to do anything hastily, I'll say. You don't want to just mm-hmm. say Let's pull all of our investments out uh, today. Uh, you want to do it in a deliberate process. And New York has done that. They've asked all of the all the companies in the fossil fuel industry 
to respond to a questionnaire that they submit. They mm. say, you know, what is your you know total carbon output? How are you transitioning away from fossil fuel and, and having a lower carbon impact? And then the state of New York is evaluating those responses. If they don't respond at all, then they are a stock that gets out of their portfolio. If they respond and don't really have a plan, then they are removed from the investment portfolio. If they respond and have a plan that's unrealistic, then similarly, you know, removed from the investment portfolio. If they respond and say, hey, you know, 20 years ago, we had you know, X, Y, Z billion of carbon impact, we've reduced that 90%. We have a plan for the last 10%. Then maybe even though it's an industry within the fossil fuel industry, it's a company that's maybe a good investment that is with a quite reasonable, legitimate plan about to transition to, you know, having very limited carbon impact. So I think you want to do that. You want to do that analysis, not with a hatchet, but with a scalpel. But we should do that analysis. That's, I'm not saying, you know, I am saying that we shouldn't move forward with that because um, just from a risk standpoint, I get concerned with with whether we hold on to those investments too long. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What you just said to me also kind of shows what what an interesting tipping point we're at between when it comes to fossil fuels, like as an industry, what their own trajectory has been. Yeah, um, you know, I, the, the, the outlook is not bright, I think. If you're in the- <laughs> and we're and you just, you know, and the outlook's not bright for all of us to have to deal with the impacts of, you know, what we have done with, you know, with uh, all the activity that has contributed to climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, younger generations are going to be dealing with that for, for decades. So there is a tipping point, I think, and I don't think it's too far down the road where um, we have broader realization from governments across the globe about the impact that we're having and the need for transformational work on our economy. That's going to be a tough time period for you know traditional industries that rely heavily on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a, a question that has come up with in conversations that Emily and I have had around climate change. Is addressing it will require changes at the local and state level and changes to our economy and how we do business. Have you had a chance to kind of sit down and, and think about that as if, if we are transferring our, I mean, tran- transitioning our economy to respond to climate change, like what lever needs to be pulled first on an economic yeah. broad picture? So, you know, I, I worry about it because, you know, as we see, we did a, we commissioned a study at our department and said, you know, how has the climate been changing and how will that impact our insurance industry? It was specific mm-hmm. to the insurance industry. The meteorological, the, the climate analysis was, uh, was very consistent with a lot of other reports saying that Vermont is getting warmer and that Vermont is getting wetter. So we might have less snow in the winter but we're going to have more severe hailstorms and windstorms and severe rain in the spring, the summer, and the fall. Hmm. So from an insurance perspective, if you're trying to cover claims and accidents, that's important information to know because maybe you'll have fewer claims in the winter, but maybe you're going to now have more claims in the spring as we have hailstorms more regularly. So that was the context in which we did that study. But we also noted in the study that, hey, as Vermont's climate gets warmer and wetter, there are fundamental traditional Vermont industries that are going to continue to be put at risk, like maple sugaring, like the ski industry, 
like fall foliage and tourism and agriculture. I mean, there was a story in BPR just this week that was an excellent one because it yeah. was what we've been talking about for a little bit over a year that you don't, you know, if you plant and then all of a sudden you have a severe frost because you planted too early, mm-hmm. or if you plant and there's significant severe, like all day, multiple day rain that washes everything out, it's really hard to know, you know, you can't use the traditional timing if you're in, in, in agriculture. So all of those things are are at risk. And I think as a, as Vermont, we need to do what we can to, to prevent and mitigate against climate, but we're a small state. And I think ultimately we need to do what we can to be resilient against its impact. So we think about having more severe rain, think about Irene and, and, and how that impacted many small communities in at the bottom of riverbeds, the bottom of uh, valleys. Um, so more resiliency there, I think is necessary, but it's not just a doom and gloom. I think we also have to think about the opportunities that it might present. Vermont is going to be you know, a climate that is changed, but I think it'll be a lot better than many other parts of our country mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, not having severe wildfires, uh, not having severe tornadoes, not having severe hurricane risk. So in the same way that right now we're facing this acute housing crisis, I think it's not going to go away because over the next decades, New England and Vermont, and maybe in particular, will be a favorable place for those you know, climate refugees that are looking to live elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I think it gets back to the fundamental question that we were talking about before is how do we, you know, what do we want Vermont to look like? Where is the housing going to be to house the people that want to live here? And how do we do that housing in a way that's environmentally friendly? And I do think it's dense urban, you know, downtown housing near our, our towns, our cities, our village centers. It's not just a a challenge that we need to solve for this sort of acute moment where we're coming out of the pandemic and a lot of people have moved here and more people want to move here um, because of this split between living and working in the same place. I think it's a trend that if we're smart, will only be continuing over the next decades because of factors well beyond our control, uh, you know, in Vermont, but they're factors that we need to, you know, be honest about and mitigate against and build some resiliency into our, um, landscapes, but also find ways to take advantage of those opportunities as well that present themselves. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mike. Mike Pichek, who is running for uh, state treasurer uh, in the primaries. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but a couple things left to do. One, if people want to find out more information or, or connect with you, how do they do that? So they can go to our website. It's at www.mikeforvermont.com. We went with Mike instead of Pichak. <laughs> thought it'd be easier for people to spell and find. So mikeforvermont.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Mike. And we, of course, as you know, we like to toast at the end oh. of the happy hour. <laughs> so what shall we toast to? Shall we toast to healthy economies? Yeah, I like that. That sounds good. Healthy co- economies and healthy communities. Cheers. 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 <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week on the happy hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. As always, you can find us on the radio at uh, 2 p.m. on Friday or you check out our Facebook page or wherever you find your podcasts. Have a great weekend, everyone. 